Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep broadcasting. Go to 3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. G'day and welcome to the show. You're listening to Stick Together, broadcasting from 3CR's mobile studio and to community radio stations around the country via the Community Radio Network. My name's Elena McMaster. We're coming to you live from the Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy today in Musgrave Park, Brisbane. We're here on Jagra land participating in decolonisation before profit, a week full of Aboriginal resistance and protest against the G20. This week on Stick Together, we'll hear a story from Auntie Dawn Daylight, a Murray woman who had her wages stolen by the Queensland government. Aboriginal people in Queensland were indentured into work and had their wages stolen under the 1939 Aboriginal Preservation and Protection Act. First, for some background to this issue, we spoke with, uh, we spoke with Dr Ros Kidd, an independent researcher whose work helped uncover many of the records elders need to support their claims demanding payment of these stolen wages. It's quite obvious from the evidence that the governments in Queensland knew all the way through of their control of Aboriginal people's wages and their personal finances. They knew that money was being defrauded, they knew it was being lost, they were misusing it themselves. And so we're using that as a... Uh, as a background to, to be able to get proper justice on this issue. Can you just give us an idea of the scale of, of this? Like how many people, how many Aboriginal people approximately were ripped off and what we're talking about in terms of years worked without being paid appropriate wages as well as um, how much, by how much most people were actually ripped off? I know these figures are, can only be approximate because of lost records, but, well, lost or, you know, whatever, purposefully... Uh, um, buried records by the government. Yeah, so can you, can you just kind of give us a bit of an idea of the, what the, this looks like in terms of the scale of it? Well, through until uh, the early 1970s, probably more than half the Aboriginal population of Queensland was under direct government control. The government took control of every aspect of their lives, even down to uh, minding their children, where the kids could go to school, where people could live. It ordered people to work in various areas. Uh, it controlled all of their wages. It contracted people out to work whether they liked it or not. It intercepted child endowment and pensions. So you had a huge amount of people, thousands of people, probably to seven and 8,000 people in the mid-century who were, whose, whose lives and every aspect of their finances was controlled by the Queensland government. And this control was very, very intensive. They kept records on absolutely everything and, and there are many, many of those records still available. In terms of controls of labour, uh, intercepting wages um, and the government set up trust funds from people's wages... Uh, it's difficult to quantify across all those thousands of people, but since you're looking at a, a probably a 50-year period, um, there's, there's several parts of that where you can do broad figures. Um, the underpayment of pastoral workers, for instance, the government itself 
set a cheap wage for pastoral workers that it contracted out onto, onto the uh, properties. But even that wage wasn't, uh, wasn't guaranteed because the government failed to have any proper procedures in place to make sure that money was paid. And it seems to me that over, say, a 30-year period, looking between the 30s and the 60s, it's probably $200 million lost uh, just on pastoral wages, just in terms of the low wage that the government set and, and failed to ensure. Um, a lot of the wage was supposedly paid directly as pocket money to workers. Now, right through the system, the government was warned time after time, year after year, the audit reports say that the system's useless, it's out of control, we've got no ways of knowing whether that money's paid. Now, given the percentage of that payment that could be paid as pocket money, you're looking at probably over $250 million in that part of it alone. I mean, you're talking of a 40, 50, 60 year period and many thousands of people. It's it's enormous amount. Um, a third place that the money was lost by the government um, was to reserve workers who they illegally underpaid after 1975. People on reserves had to be paid uh, an award level wage. And we know the government here in Queensland, and knowing that it was illegal to do so, just decided it wouldn't bother paying the award wage. And that's uh, over $180 million there. So it's massive amounts of money we're talking about that were earned by Aboriginal workers uh, and by mothers that took child endowment and pensions. And the government set itself up uh, to control this money, supposedly to look after it, to safe keep it. There were all sorts of legal restrictions in terms of their duty as trustees and they've absolutely failed that completely. So, Ros, can you tell us about the, um, the claim that was made in, in 2001, what the government's offer was after that and then what eventuated, um, what, what eventuated in terms of the way that people responded to the, to the, government's, the government's offer? Right. Well, uh, towards the end of the 1990s, um, people were starting to work from the evidence that I'd provided and be able to say, we have got a, a case to make here. We know how much of this money was uh, wrongly spent or lost by the government. We know the degree of guilt the government has it's because it admitted it many times on its own records. So and I think the first claim that was going to be put up by Quails, the Queensland Aboriginal and the Legal Service, uh, was around $600 million. They had, um, I think, a couple of thousand people signed up ready to make that claim against the government. And to preempt that, uh, the Beattie government in uh, 1999 made an offer of uh, $55 million. Now, Beattie at that point even admitted, um, and he referred to my work, he even admitted that the amount owing might be $500 million. And yet he said, well, I'll give you $55 million. Um, he, he said we're being very generous. He said it's a win for the taxpayer, which shows the attitude. Um, that $55 million worked out to a maximum of $7,000 for, for some workers and $4,000 for other workers. So Beatty's offer was hopelessly inadequate. In fact, it was insulting. And I think it was discriminatory myself because... If, if there had been any other sector of the community, say, say teachers, for instance, who discovered that they had been underpaid and cheated of money that the government was supposedly holding on their behalf, 
There is no way that a Premier would come up and say, well, I'll give you $4,000 or $7,000 and, you know, think yourself lucky. Um, what happened with people who, who did accept the offer, um, they desperately needed the money and they were forced to sign an indemnity that they wouldn't ever bring legal action against the government um, to, as a condition of getting that money. But in signing the indemnity, which is, is quite a, a, a common legal procedure, but indemnities are never signed unless people get independent legal advice and get full access to know how much they actually have got missing and whether the $4,000 or the $7,000 is reasonable. Now, that never happened with Aboriginal people. It was the government provided solicitors and the solicitors stood in the room and said, well, this is the situation. Either you take the money and sign or you don't get any. Now, that's not independent legal advice. So we are still fighting uh, for justice. We are fighting to overturn that indemnity. We're fighting to get uh, a proper um, a proper result in terms of justice for people who have been ripped off for so many years. That was Dr Ros Kidd, a researcher who is helping uncover the evidence of wages ripped off from thousands of Murrays in Queensland um, for decades under the 1939 Aboriginal Preservation and Protection Act. You're listening to Stick Together on 3CR and National Community Radio. We're coming to you live today from the Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy in Musgrove Park, Brisbane. Uh, we're participating in decolonisation before profit in resistance to the imperialist powers meeting this weekend in the convention centre situated just 200 metres to our east. I caught up with Auntie Dawn Daylight uh, here in our tent studio to hear her story of forced removal and slavery. Uh, yeah, my name's Dawn Daylight. I was born in Ipswich in 1947, which makes me 67, 68 next year. And I believe that we are Waka Waka people and Jarawa and Garamgar people from many places. And like I said, born in Ipswich. But my father was uh, born in Ipswich, just outside Ipswich. My mother was born on the north side of Brisbane and uh, later on they moved out to Pergamission which is outside of Ipswich and I grew up in uh, in Ipswich for a short time but then was removed to a, a place to work when I was very young Can you tell us um, a bit about that how old you were when you were um, required to go to work and did, were you removed from your family in order to go and do that? I was removed and also when um, I think it was policy by the government at the time of the time and I know they took a lot of Aboriginal children, a lot of young people and I was only a young girl at, uh, I just turned uh, 11 going on to 12 when I left school so I was actually forced to go to work when I was 12 year old and I went into a convent in Brisbane. So what kind of work were you expected to do? I was a, became a domestic worker. I was very young, very naive. Um, I think when you're a teenage girl, I think uh, the responsibility should be to your parents and being at home and being read by your, your mother and your father. But my, my father passed on very early. So whether it was the policy when you were born as an Aboriginal kid or Aboriginal child, you were always going to be deemed to be removed and 
put into some service or domestic work or stock work or something like that. Yeah. Can you tell us about the um, the little jail that they kept you in? Well, when we worked at this convent, it's just over over the other side of that um, Story Bridge. Um, it's at All Hallows, they, Fortitude Valley, right? All Hallows was one of the places that a lot of the um, younger girls, and there was other Aboriginal girls there at, at the convent school. But I didn't go to school. I wasn't there to go to school. I went there as, a, as someone that was going to be trained up to become a domestic servant. And then, um, so they used to put us into this room. I thought it was like a bit of a dungeon under the ground. And so they used to put us in there at night time, lock the doors and then let us out at night time uh, in the morning to go to work. So we went to work about 6 or 6.30, 7 o'clock or something like that. And then you work for a few hours, have a bit of a break, um, go back. We worked in the kitchen. I worked in the kitchen with big saucepans, like what's down here today at the, at the camp here at uh, Musgrave Park. So the big saucepans and big trays of food, we were expected to uh, prepare things like lots of potatoes and domestic type work, and also cleaning and scrubbing and polishing and things like that. Mm. So the nuns would come and let us out in the morning, you'd go and have a rest, go back to work, then you'd stay there till the... See, I worked between the convent and the laundry and the boarding school, because All Hallows, the convent school was a school for uh, boarders in that time. I think it's closed now, yeah. I've, I've heard a lot of aunties and uncles um, refer to this type of work as slavery. Would you agree with that term? Well, to me, it was slavery. I mean, uh, if you look at young girls, young boys today, they should be out playing and having fun because we grew up to a certain time on a property. My mother and father were given a property to take care of by a local meat worker. And even though my mother had to work really hard to rear us and give us the best and do the best she could. I think that as young kids, slavery is ex exactly the word I, I, I would say. Because I mean, if you're a young girl or a young boy, you know, you're meant to be out doing things that young people do, not to be out slaving your guts for three pounds a week, which was what we got. It's another world. It's really hard to explain the kind of world that it seemed to me very foreign, very white. You know what I mean? Mm. Growing up with a lot of white people around you, a lot of white kids, a lot of white nuns dressed up in these outfits. And uh, so you become like a foreigner even in your own land, your own country. And there was other Aboriginal girls in there. One girl, her sister actually brought me here today. And she remembered, she was a much taller young woman, Aboriginal girl. Well, I say she's a woman now. Um, she remembered me, and I've only met up with her probably in the last five to ten years, and she saw me on a bus. And she said, I think I remembered you. She said, you were the Aboriginal girl that was at this convent. And I said, I think so. She said, you were trying to get over the fence, get over the fence to run away. And she said, I grabbed you to pull you off the barbed wire because there was barbed wire on the fence. 
on the top of the fence so he wouldn't escape. And I think the reason that I was trying to do that was to run away and go home. And I don't think we were under the control of children's services or whatever they call themselves today. I don't think we were neglected in any way. So what you're describing, like it so- sounds exactly like a jail. It's, it's, it sounds like you were well, basically locked up. Well, it was like a lock-up. Yeah. I mean, it had bars on it. There were bars around the windows. And I think there was probably double beds, double bunks. So there'd be one girl up the top, one underneath, and there was another one on that side, another one up the top. Mm. So there was probably four to a room, as far as I can remember. And um, I don't know what they do there now, but that's the way we were treated at the time. Mm. And uh, I used to hear the nuns walking across the yard, but they were sort of they they had their own rooms above us. And so we used to run when we used to hear the keys rattling uh, or their um, rosary beads. They had these big black rosary beads with a cross, big like a big um, wooden cross and black rosary beads. And we knew they were coming to lock, well, a bit like lockdown, mm. yeah. Has, there, has All Hallows Convent or the Catholic Archdiocese here in Brisbane ever apologised to you and other Aboriginal children who were... Well, I know they do have. They've never apologised to me. Mm. They probably don't think they have anything to apologise to me about. Um, and, I mean, I don't want to ever go back there. Why would I want to go back there for an anniversary or remembrance of... of uh, the atrocities that were done to us as young young Aboriginal girls. I mean, if you would have saw me when I was 11 or 12, I was just like an ordinary kid, you know, an ordinary kid who should have been at home doing what ordinary kids do. Um, so the money that they didn't pay you was kept in a government trust, and what happened to you when you tried to get the money out of that trust? Well, the thing was, I didn't even know that there was such a thing, a trust fund. It was probably more like a slush fund for them, for somebody. <laughs> yeah. And so they would have tapped into it, and it's probably there was probably nothing left by the time I was due to leave. And anyway, when I did try to apply for the rep- reparation money, I... Um, uh, was knocked back, so I wasn't entitled to any reparation money. And I know that there was supposed to be money put away. But, uh, I mean, how can you... What can I do to prove it? Uh, when I tried to put get records and stuff like that, the, they sent me from the department across the river there, from William Street, said that all the records of uh, the time of that time in the 1974 floods got washed away mm. and uh, so I got photographs of of the time in 1974 floods um, showing where the water levels were in the government buildings so it's a bit of a what you call a bodged up or mm. something they're hiding yeah but I mean how can I prove that so the reparation money was um, $4,000 if you had gotten it um, but really you would have been, you know, entitled to about $400,000 for 10 years' work, you know, as a domestic, you know, say, in today's money, earning $40,000 a year, which would be a decent wage, you know. How did you feel about the the insultingly small amount of money it was? Well, I think it was an insult to all people. 
I mean, if you think of how much has been sent on, spent on this event that's going on in Brisbane today, I mean, I, I can't prove that where, where is our money. That's a lot of money. I mean, I could have done a lot of things. I could have bought a house. I could have been sitting pretty somewhere at the beach and having weekends away with my family, my daughter, you know, and things like that. But, uh, yeah, that's a lot of money. Where is it? And then there's the question of intergenerational wealth. Like, you would have been able to... You would have been able to help out your kids as well. Well, I mean, I had to wait till I was older because when I left school, I was only uh, at a grade four level of educated, as an educated Aboriginal child, and spent most of my time at uh, school sitting on a veranda because I had a lot of early childhood illnesses and spent a lot of time in hospital. So maybe the money that came, uh, that could have come to me and would have helped my daughter and myself, to have a better education. And, I mean, I had to wait till I was in my 30s myself to go for a higher education and get my university degree and, and to go on to TAFE um, so they can do the things that I've missed out on when I was a kid. Yeah. So 40, whatever money... Yeah, where is it? That was... That was Aunty Dawn Daylight, a Wagga Wagga Jarawa and Garunga woman speaking... Uh, with myself and Corey Green about her experience as a child of removal and forced forced labour. We're coming to you live uh, from the Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy in Musgrave Park in Brisbane. We're here on Jagera land and we're broadcasting to lands stolen from Aboriginal people all over this country. Stick Together's home station is 3CR Radio in Melbourne. Currently we're in a tent at Musgrave Park, um, but we're usually broadcasting to you from the studios in Melbourne. We're broadcast nationally on the community radio network. The Decolonisation Before Profit events are continuing throughout this week. For more info, you can find the Brisbane Blacks on the web. If you want to contact the producers of this show, Stick Together, you can email us at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or call us on 03 We're also on Facebook and Twitter. If you miss this program or um, want to listen to it again, you can find our podcast on the 3CR website, which is www.3cr.org.au. We're going to leave you today with a song from Arnie Dawn Daylight. My name's Elena McMaster. Catch you later.
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. You can find us at 3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.